Welcome to ICTUS, the evolving conductor, your source for everything conducting, teaching, and lifelong learning on and off the podium. Treat yourself to a dose of musical inspiration as we pick the minds of great conductors. I'm your host, Lisa Tatum. Hi, everyone. Welcome to season two of ICTUS. I'm really excited to be back with you, and I hope you had a fantastic summer. I wanted to let you know that ICTUS is now a proud member of the Music Teacher Development Podcast Network, also known as the Muted Podcasts. Each week, I'll have a short feature on one of the other amazing podcasts in the network that you should definitely check out. On this episode of ICTUS, I'm chatting with author and Grammy-nominated conductor, Dr. James Jordan of Westminster Choir College. You may remember me mentioning his book, The Musician's Soul, throughout season one. I gotta tell you, it's one of my all-time favorites, and I really think everyone should read it. But before we get to that, I'd like to introduce the Amused podcast to you. Remember your first term of teaching? Learning all the skills that you don't get taught in music school? Managing a transitioning culture in your classroom? Finding out that you have to teach guitar this term? During those early years, we found out that leaning on a community of music educators was important, not only for building that knowledge in ourselves, but also maintaining enough sanity to serve the students right in front of us. Amused is a podcast centered around a community of music teachers. Between the four of us, we teach choir, band, orchestra, general, jazz, and marching band at the elementary through collegiate levels. We certainly don't have all the answers, but you're welcome to listen in while we try to find them. Join us while we work through the challenges of music teaching and celebrate the joy of bringing music making into the lives of young people. In each episode, you'll hear stories, both good and bad, about that week of teaching, and we'll try and tackle an issue that one of us is struggling with. Something we're all taught is that music brings people together, but being the only teacher in your subject at a site can be really isolating. We think everyone ought to be a part of a community, and you're welcome to come join ours. Episodes come out on Wednesdays during the school year, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at amusedcast.org. Hi, Dr. Jordan. Thank you so much for joining us on ICTUS today. It's great to be here. I am so excited for our listeners to hear your story and about uh, all your adventures and writings. Would you start off with just sharing a little bit about when it was that you knew you wanted to be a musician? That's a really interesting question because I you had you had sent that to me and I have been doing some thinking and I it kind of happened gradually. There was always music in our house. My my father uh, was an auto mechanic, but but had a uh, a very unusual. Um, he played in a band that actually read down Tommy Dorsey's charts uh, ah. on the weekend. So my dad was a musician, and and from what I can ascertain, a pretty good one. So there was always music around the house. I always thought about it, but I really had no instruction in music. I grew up in a co-region town in central Pennsylvania, and I think the deciding factor was I I was in a band. I was in a high school band. My high school program was terrible. Um, there was no uh. choir. It was, it was, it was all right, but it was not, I mean, it was not quality. Mm-hmm. So I went to Susquehanna University as a biology major uh, in pre-med. I had made the decision that that's what I was going to do. And the first term was probably the most unhappy time of my life. I, uh, uh-huh. 
I didn't know what to do. I, I, I was not happy. I was wrestling with the fact that I didn't think I had the skills to get into the music department. And this is quite a, a remarkable story. I decided that I would, despite all the questioning, I would give it a try. And I made a pact with myself that I would try the music thing. And if it didn't work out, I'd go back to biology because I was, I was good. I was not flunking out. I was just... So here's the way the story goes. I auditioned. I worked, uh, tried to get up a clarinet audition. I was in the band at Susquehanna University. And I did the audition the first time, and I didn't get in. I took time off. I was at school, but I took a lighter load, and I just practiced like crazy. Yeah. And I took the audition again. And this was a turning point in my life and kind of it's always been pay it forward for me. Jim Steffi, who was chairman of the music department, later became president at Muhlenberg College. Jim was a Curtis graduate in, my, in the wind ensemble conductor and is still a very good friend to this day. I did the audition and I didn't, he came to my dorm room, knocked on the door and said, it still wasn't good enough to me. And then I thought, oh boy. And then he said, but he said, we're going to put, we're going to let you in, but I got to warn you, it's a huge uphill battle. I'd never had theory. I had never had anything. Mm-hmm. And he said, think, we think we can give you a chance. There's something there that's driving you. Yeah. And so I dug in and the first semester, the first term was really rough. The second one was rough. And then after that, after I started put pieces together, was Fantastic. My dream had been actually to be a wind conductor. That's what I thought. Wow. And a band director. And then I heard uh, my junior year, the Luther College Choir on tour with Weston Noble. Ah. And I freaked out. I (laughs) I didn't, I'd never heard a choir like that. I was astounded. And so I thought, now you have to understand, I didn't sing in a choir. I wasn't a vocalist. But I had to make the decision that that's what I was going to do. It's, it's just crazy. And so I auditioned at Temple University with Robert Page. And I got in, which that was the program uh, in the 70s, the choral mm-hmm. conducting program. And then Bob went to Carnegie Mellon in the summer, unbeknownst to me. And I showed up at Temple University. And I remember walking in uh, Presser Hall and saying, I heard that Page had left. And I said, who, 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 who am I going to study with? And they said, oh, some old lady. And that old lady was Elaine Brown. Ah. And that changed my life. That mm-hmm. woman changed my life. And so from there, there, there on, I, that, I mean, choral was the track. I still miss, I miss clarinet playing. I do, you know, a couple of years I went down and taught with Eugene Corcoran. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, means a longtime friend, but based upon a musician's soul, we met through that book. So I've been to North Texas to the Wind Symposium in the summer. Uh, I've been to uh, Columbus State. And so, I, you know, but it's it's a world I still love. And playing in a wind ensemble, I think, has influenced me in the way I think about choral sound mm. in terms of color. Yeah. Textures. Yeah. If you listen to any of the choirs that are on recording, either Williamson Voices or the same stream, you'll hear a broadened palette of choral color, I think. Yeah. That's kind of the story. So that the moment, I think, was when I was in undergraduate school that first semester. I, I, could, I wasn't happy. 
And so I decided to try it. And if I failed, I failed. You know, and then when I got my first degree, I was thrilled. I thought I'd never have a degree in music. And here, years later, I got two doctorates. And I, I can't believe this kid, this kid from Frackville, Pennsylvania, has had this kind of career, you know? It still is mind-blowing and mind-boggling. And I'm always so inspired when I hear these similar stories. And I think it's just such a great reminder for us. We never know what a student's going to do later on down the road. That's the truth. And I think I think also I get really irritated when I hear teachers judge, make a judgment about whether a student has talent or not. Talent is, you never really know. I mean, now that, you know, we have Gordon's aptitude test, which I do think tell us about potential. But again, it's work ethic. I mean, you, you know, you've had students who are so gifted and they're lazy and they do nothing with it. And then you have that student that you would never think is going to amount to anything. And you find out that they're, the work ethic, you know, it's it's that 10,000 hour ethic. That, right. That if you're willing to work, I, you know, I always tell my students, I think talent is really overrated. <laughs> I mean, it's work. I mean, I don't know what talent is, but I do know that, you know, if you work, whatever talent and God-given gift you have, you can maximize. And it's a matter of work. You don't work. I don't care how gifted you are. And it's not going to realize anything. And I've had those students in my career who were very gifted and did nothing with it because they were lazy. Right. You know, so I, I think that that's another thing. I, I don't know really how talented I am. All I know is I do work hard. I mean, that's kind of the family ethic, uh, the work ethic. And I think that that's part of it. And I yeah. think out of that grows an understanding and a musicianship that, that I think becomes very deep because of the amount of thought and work that goes into it. I just remember being in my early 20s and being a, a young, really young teacher. And I remember just being so jealous of some of my friends that were out there that they were just so talented and they were winning this award and that award and doing all these great and wonderful things. And, and I'm not saying that any of them are lazy now, but it's interesting because now here we are in our thirties at this point and all of those people that I was so jealous of, they're not in music anymore. They're in a completely different career path, which is great. And I'm happy for them. They found something that makes their soul happy, but it just, it kind of makes you think a little differently about things. No, no, absolutely. There's no question about it. And I think I keep telling my students that, you know, they say, am I going to be successful in music? And I said, the answer is how much, how much time you're willing to put in. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. I love the word that you just said, and you talked about a successful career in music. And I just think that's so just individualistic. We, we put these people on a pedestal and we think that person, I'm speaking to my former self, that person is successful then at that moment. But that's their version of success versus my version of success. And what does that mean? Well, I think the version of success is, you know, the story that I sometimes tell my graduate students is that, you know, I had a graduate student a number of years ago who got a B in my conducting class. Mm. B minus maybe. And they came to my office furious. Ah. They, they said, you don't understand I want to go to graduate school after this for my doctorate. And I chose this to make a living. And this is, this is not going to open the door. And I said, well, I hate to tell you, but your, your logic is flawed because you don't choose this to make a living. You choose music to make a life. Yeah. 
it's a huge difference. And I think that is, that's an important caveat to divide and to have straight in your head. Mm. And, and I think the living will come. I mean, but I, I don't think that can be your, your sole motivation. Yep. I think that's very wise. Yeah. You were talking about your time in, in the band world and how that has affected the way that you hear color and balance with your choirs. Would you talk a little bit about that? I'm always fascinated to hear specifically choir directors speak about those concepts. Well, I don't. I'd be interested in having a roundtable with choral people to talk about the concepts because I'm not so sure how they're thinking. I mean, there's a couple new books coming out. One of them is called Intonational Solfege. And I'm really tired of, uh, you know, I went to Texas Music Educators and saw a new Solfege book. And I went to another convention and saw another Solfege session where they're teaching either Gordon patterns or they're teaching interval recognition. And it dawned on me, how do we teach people to sing in tune? The answer is what I learned is, as an instrumentalist. You, you learn to play in tune by playing in context with other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do I know that my instrument's out of tune? I, list, I don't determine that myself. When I'm in a wind ensemble, I listen into the chord and I figure out where that I can get rid of the beats and the balance. Balance in a, in a wind ensemble is taken care of by the instrumentation, mm -hmm. by and large. It's written sure. into the score. So then it's a question of somebody not overblowing the dynamic and mm -hmm. also listening. I mean, I learned to listen from playing in a wind ensemble, which is different than in choirs, because I think the problem in choirs is that people are not taught to listen in the way that they need to listen to be in tune. They, for some reason, they listen to their own part. And that's huh. it. As long as they can hear their own part, they're listening. But there, there's no contextual immersion into the chord. Mm. And... Uh, you know, I remember I had a, a, an old Italian teacher in the coal region that taught me clarinet. And this was in the area where you didn't, in those days, you didn't have to be certified. They just wanted a good teacher to teach an instrument or something. And this guy, I, I, rem I remember very, very clearly in the, the fourth grade, he would, after I got done some lessons, he says, now I'm going to put you in the band. Now you understand I'm from an Italian family. He says, I'm going to put you in a band. And he says, uh, I said, oh, my gosh. He says, yes. And news. he says, there's two rules for being in another band. He says, number one, he says, you listen to everybody else about yourself. And number two, he says, if you hear yourself, he says, you're either playing too loud or your instrument would be out of tune. Hmm. He says, those are the two rules. And I said, thank you very much. I said, Mr. Revito, what happens if I don't observe the rules? This is a true story. He says, I break your legs. Now, we all know that that's ridiculous, but I believed it. I mean, no, no, I believe it. So I went in, listened, said, I can't, like, not do what he said. I mean, oh, I like, no. And that, that started my whole intonation thing, how I work with my choirs, I, I think, in a very atraditional way. Uh, you know, I think balancing in choirs is different uh, because – in a wind ensemble, you're voiced and so that your particular color has to come in. But in a choir where you're dealing with all of the same instrument, 
you know, if you have three roots being sound in a chord, you can't have three roots sound and the chord will be out of balance. Mm. So my choirs identify how many, you know, how, what's doubled, what's not doubled, etc. But I think that's one of the principles. And the other principles are, if you listen to Williamson voices, you listen to the same stream. The way I balance a choir in terms of the numbers of voices on each voice part is very much like a wind ensemble. Hmm. There is this thing where every part is equal in some people's world. I tend to load up on uh, on the lower end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So some of my choirs have eight second basses in. Yeah. It would like be like the tuba euphonium line in a, in a, in a good wind ensemble. Uh-huh. And I also, I also think that I hear color. I'm thankful for my life as a, as a wind player because I hear color. I think one of the problems in, that is in choral music is that some conductors, because they're vocalists, hear a color. Mm-hmm. I think because of I'm a clarinetist, uh, there's flute color, there's oboe color. I think I want to hear, that's how I heard sound. Mm-hmm. And so I think it automatically refracts into that, into a choir. And I'm very thankful for it. I mean, I'm, I'm always listening for color, you know, and, and I think that's, that's a direct byproduct of my time in a wind ensemble. Mm-hmm. Would you talk a little bit, I'm interested because talking about color, some people, they speak in, in actual red, greens, blues. And for me, color yes. is more about emotion to me. How does, how does that sense of color, how do you think about that? Well, the issue with color, I think, is, is ignited by the breath of the conductor. Mm. I think I breathe colors. Look, I, I think uh, for some pieces that are very difficult that I think are inherently monochromatic in their scoring, mm-hmm. my choirs do, if I have a synesthete in the choir that hears in color, I go with their judgment and we color the score. If their part is yellow, they sing yellow, they breathe yellow. Mm-hmm. I think for one of the great tools that both conductors in the wind world and orchestral world and choral world have at their disposal is the power to breathe mm-hmm. and to neuro- neurologically transfer their fantasy of color into the sound magically, neurologically. And so, you know, I can't breathe for everybody in a wind ensemble, but I can breathe with them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that made a lot of sense to me. A number of years ago, I was teaching with Donald Nally, who conducts The Crossing. And I think Donald's one of the great conductors and he's a friend and has a couple Grammys. But I remember him saying, and getting in front of the, the, there's a book called the, the Musician's Being, where the whole premise of the book is based on this. Donald got up in front of the group and he asked them to, the choir to breathe. And then he says, no, 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 breathe as me. Breathe as me. Hmm. Now, what in God's name does that mean? That means you become as a musician aware of me. And when he says breathe as me, it's where the breath is. It's how I'm breathing the color. It's it's a sensitization, I think, of the thing that binds us all together. So color for me, it can be a color. It can be a chordal color. But I think that's a practice thing. For example, What's the difference if you listen to a Fred Fennell recording and a Frank Battisti recording of the same piece? There are color differences. What are the color differences? Well, I would argue that the color difference is created by the person. Frank is a longtime friend. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that human being causes a color. 
Uh, Fred Fennell causes a color. Jerry Junkin causes a color. Eugene Corporate causes a color. And so I think color is one's ability to imagine. I think one's fantasy is in key. And it's not a, a recipe thing. It just happens. Mm-hmm. So, but I think you have to believe that you influence color. And that also, I think, is influenced by how much you listen to. You know, we now have things that I didn't have as an undergraduate. I mean, the amount of recordings that are available and the, and the engineering that's going on right now is astounding. Mm-hmm. What you can hear with these headphones is astounding. And, and that's part of the education. I think a lot of audiation first. A conductor should study a score. One of the things I do with my grad students is I don't want them to look at a score. I want them to listen to it about 50 times Mm. and then look at the score. Input the sonic materials. And I don't think conductors do that enough. I think right away you're going to the score and you're kind of trying to suck meaning out of the notation. Not that you're going to copy a Fred Fennell or a Frank Battisti or Eugene Corporan, but at least you can have an idea of what the piece sounds like, and then building your own audiation, the ability to hear that when the sound isn't present. The bottom line in all this is you realize that after score study, you should be able to sit with a score and and hear the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, you, you need to do more listening, uh, however you learn a score. But I think that's also important. I mean, this idea of fantasy. The other thing I think you have to be prepared for is once the fantasy is in place, that your ensemble will show you another viewpoint of the piece of music that yeah. you able to take in. This is not about you inflicting upon the ensemble your biases. You're just one musician in a room of many. Mm-hmm. And you have to, I think this is the other mistake the conductors make. They legislate and dictate a sound world interpretation that doesn't include the performers. I mean, we do have business on monitoring intonation and and good tone color and balance, et cetera. But after a while, you know, you have to allow them to be musicians. And there's a certain vulnerability that is necessary for that to happen. So I think that's a very sticky wicket. Mm-hmm. That ability to imagine and allow at the same time is an important skill for conductors and teachers. It's a fine line to walk too, yeah. And I think our job is to empower our our musicians and to, I think, to make them understand that they are being listened to and that they have a voice. I think ensemble singing and ensemble playing is this human thing about empowerment. And the the most recent book is The Musician's Empathy. Mm. And one of the things that this was the book I wrote during the pandemic, lockdown, it dawned on me that I have never used the word empathy in my writing. You know, hmm. after 60 books, you think, and I have a student in Germany who's actually a pretty well-known opera conductor who wrote me because I was kind of lashing myself in the early part of the pandemic and one of his lessons about this empathy thing. And he wrote me and he said, oh, no, no, Dr. Jordan, he, I don't know the exact page, but he said, on page 134, you do mention it once. That <laughs> <laughs> was no damn help. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do think we've missed a point in conducting and teaching that it is an awareness that every rehearsal, we need to be able to walk in the shoes of somebody else. You have to become another person. And this causes the hearing, I think, to literally open like a peacock tail. Mm-hmm. 
and to you, you know on our best days in teaching lisa you know we do do this <laughs> we become very sensitized to a student or yep. something but i do think this one book that i quote in the empathy book it's pretty shocking but the quote is something along the lines that people who are not empathic are evil i know that's pretty dramatic but if you're not willing to walk in and becoming another walking in another person's shoes that's really kind of the start of inhumanity and the other thing the other book that is somewhere in my study here this is a book that written by an autistic young man and it's a fascinating book it just came out george jordy i can't remember his last name mm -hmm. it's on the, it's on the amazon bestseller list if you put in autism and a book something's going to come up but this book blew me away because he he's an oxford graduate this kid and he said i'm autistic because i feel everything around me i i he says i'm aware of people's angst their nervousness everything about them and he says i just shut them out he says it's too much ah but he said you know there's nothing the matter with me the problem is with all of you huh. because you're not aware i'm aware of everything and i just choose to shut some of it out wow it's shocking and it's an incredible read and it's in this empathy book i have mm. pulled from it in this empathy book because the most for example i i've had several autistic kids in my choir mm -hmm. and i remember people saying oh don't take them they're they're on a spectrum okay if they sing in tune and they have a beautiful voice who the hell am i and there is empathy i have to walk in their shoes so that, you know if the if a kid has asperger's in my choir and shouts out it's okay but 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 i have to be in the right place to allow that human being and i think one of the problems in ensembles we expect all our musicians to be cookie cutter people and they're not mm -hmm. they simply simply are not so this whole idea of empathy walking in someone else's shoes trying to understand see the thing is my teacher um one of your questions was you know who who influenced you well I'm one of the lucky people on the planet. I not only had one teacher, I had several. I was a student of Ed Gordon's. I studied with Wilhelm Amon in Germany, the premier, I think one of the premier choral conductors of the 20th century. Mm. But I had as my mentor and teacher, Elaine Brown, who yeah. was the, the queen of empathy. I sang in a multiracial, multi-ethnic choir in the 70s that I thought, stupidly, was everywhere in the world. And mm -hmm. it was the only choir that existed that way. So she was an empath. She yeah. knew when she walked into rehearsal where everybody was and respected where you were. I mean, she didn't try to change you. She might question you, but she didn't try to change you. So that's another really powerful powerful point for me in this this whole idea of conductor as empath mm -hmm. and and how that influences sound because i think it does yeah you know i remember a couple years ago finally coming to grasp with the the fact that i am allowed to have an interpretation or to hear things a certain way and so i just remember the first time that i felt like that on the podium what that turned into was I was demanding that the ensemble played it my way. 
rather than meeting them where they were and then making little adjustments here and there so that we could create something that was unique to us as a whole unit. And being able to stay open to that with the ensemble, I think is very important. But also, again, you talked about where everybody is, they're humans. Like we expect so many great things out of our musicians and out of our, our the people in our ensembles. Humans have bad days and it's okay to have a bad day. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but if I've had a really terrible, awful day, if I try to pick my trombone up and play, it's not going to go so well for me sometimes. Right. Well, but I think, I think that's the understanding that I think every musician needs to have is that we're, we're nothing but refractors of our own being and that, that music making is parallel with how we live our lives mm. and how we interact with people. And I, I don't know, in some ways, that's a minority opinion, unfortunately, I think, in the music world. But on the other hand, the best conductors I know are incredible human beings. Mm-hmm. The best musicians I know are incredible human beings. It's, um, you know, Yo-Yo Ma, there was a write-up in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago that Yo-Yo Ma started his own podcast. And, you know, he was a student of Pablo Casals. And uh, he said, I thought the three things in life were that I needed to really study the technique of the cello and I needed to listen to my teacher. And the third thing was me. And he says, I realize now that the first priority is me. And the second thing to learn the cello and to listen to my teacher is the work that I do on myself first and foremost. Mm -hmm. I think any great musician will tell you that. I think... But unfortunately, in our pedagogy and teaching students at at an earlier age, that's not part. I mean, part of the thing with the musician soul, which I I, I can't even believe I wrote that in 1999. And I was scared to publish that book because in 1999, nobody talked about this in music. Right. That was like touchy-feely 70s stuff. Mm -hmm. And my publisher said, is anybody going to buy this book? And I said, I don't know. I said, they'll either look at me as a charlatan or they're going to embrace it wildly. What happened with that book was it was the right book for the right time and has been for over 20 years. Yeah. I remember a CBDNA convention that I had to speak at in, in Denton. Eugene invited me. And I walk out on stage and there in the front row is Fred Fennell. Frank Wicks, I could go down the list of wind conductors I yeah. revered. And for a moment, I thought, what, what the hell am I doing on this stage? And I talked about the essence, the themes of the musician's soul. And then afterward, there was a little book signing. And in line is Fred Fennell. <sighs> and he comes up to me and he says, damn you. He says, I should have wrote this book. I do all of this and you beat me to it. (laughs) I should have wrote this. And I said, well, thank you, sir. Um, He said, will you sign my book? I said, yeah. And will you sign about 10 CDs and it's a deal? I mean, you know, but I I think it's, it's been the, it's been the secret thing that, you know, human things are important, but nobody. So now there's this whole series of the musician soul, the musicians walk there. And all of those are, are kind of, deep dives, especially 
the musician's being book, which I wrote talks about brokenness. Mm. And I think one of the things that I think limits our musicianship and our teaching ability is what I find in when I teach at Oxford, when people come and the premise of Oxford, the Choral Institute at Oxford is that they're, they don't come there to rehearse. The choir sings perfectly. Mm. So you have no, you have nothing to hide behind. I don't want the choir. I don't, you're not to rehearse. You're to conduct. Mm -hmm. And that makes them very nervous. Yeah. And to know that it's about connection, to know that that sound is them, um, to trust a choir they don't know opens up doors that they had never imagined that they were capable of. And I think, you know, that idea of um, trusting your own abilities and, you know, this idea of brokenness, my friend Makoto Fujimura, if you look him up online, I think there's a book sitting in front of me called A, a Theology of Making. Hmm. He's an artist, a visual artist who understands the creative process and we're friends. He teaches, he taught at Oxford with me. Um, and one of the things he talked about is this idea of kintsugi, this idea of Japanese ceramic repair, which everybody's picking up on, but the Japanese repair ceramics, um, sacred ceramics, tea services uh, that have been held by other people, and they, they repair it with gold. They don't mm -hmm. repair it with the color of the clay. And the symbolism is that you never hide the parts of your life that are broken. Don't talk about this, but I think one of the problems with musicians is that brokenness equals weakness equals bad musicianship. So they hide the things that make their music very unique. Mm. And it's not that you tell the ensemble anything. It's just that we have to realize that with all of our life experiences, there is a shame that we carry within us that inhibits the sound of the ensemble in front of us. And it's, it's never going to go away, but you accept it. I mean, the pain of losing people you love, the, the, the shame of failure. Oh, my God. Musicians live in this world. It's okay. When you started writing... What was the motivating factor for that? Well, how did how did you get into authoring all of these publications, and what was that like? Okay, well, there's two things I can tell you about that. The first one was was a very simple thing. I just wanted to write one book, and that mm -hmm. one book was a conducting book. And that was because when I went to Westminster, I had come from the Hart School of Music, where I was head of the DMA program in conducting. Mm -hmm. So I'd had doctoral students for six years. And when I went to Westminster, my load was I had the first year choir, which I knew I would get. And then I had to teach beginning conducting. Lisa, I had no idea how to do it. Wow. Well, I was always, I think I had a gestural gift. I always moved well. Things always worked for me. But then I started to look at conducting books. I mean, I love the Elizabeth Green book, but mm -hmm. that's not ground zero. That's that's technique. The Max Rudolph book is patterns. And there was no book that talked about human stuff, breathing, architecture, Alexander technique. I just started, I, you know, my doctorate was involved with Laban. Mm -hmm. And so I started the right of that book. That was hard. 
I wasn't a practiced writer. So the mistake I made was I would write and then I would go and rewrite and then I'd rewrite. And so basically I was, the creative process in writing was kind of stilted. Mm. And uh, it took me a long time to write that book. And I learned first that at a certain day, at a certain time, you say the book is done. There'll be always a chance for a second edition. The irony is in the first edition, while there was much right in that book, there was a lot wrong. Mm. Here's the thing. I was writing about the way I was taught. Ah. And that that's never good. With all due respect to every teacher we've had, Lisa, you don't you don't teach the way you were taught, or it's it that it's not gonna grow. It's not a pedagogy that's worth doing anything about. Well, that's the how you were taught was what worked for your teacher, not necessarily what works for you. You have to find your voice as a teacher. Here's the thing, Lisa, you know, on every instrument, you know, on trombone, you'd play your etudes, on clarinet, I'd do my close A studies. You know, there's a way of developing technique on an instrument. What do we do with conductors? We show you a three pattern, a four pattern, stand up and, and, and beat the pattern in front of people. Well, dear God, there's a lot of intermediary steps that need to happen. So mm -hmm. that first book, the success of it, evidently I hit some nerves. And then right after that came the musician's soul. Certainly the motivation, people like people think I'm, you know, with all the books published, I'm just loaded. I'm rich. No, you don't publish to get rich. Trust me. <laughs> There's no money in publishing. <laughs> there really isn't. But, you know, I, I, I am thankful that because of Ed Gordon, Ed Gordon taught me how to think. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things when we teach musicians, we don't teach them to think. You know, we sit down with the etude book, we play our, our sonatas and we study our scores, but I don't, I don't think conducting teaching necessarily always allows for the space to think and create and foster your ideas. I think that's a problem. I think yeah. that's a big problem. Questioning, the ability to question what your teacher's telling you. So, you know, for me, that process of figuring something out to teach it better is fascinating to me. Once I identify what I want to write about, then it's easy. Mm -hmm. You know, then it's, it's really easy. Oh my goodness. We're running a little short on time and I want to make sure I'm respectful of your time too. But so I have a couple rapid fire questions we could wrap Fantastic. up. Fantastic. Let's go. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So the first one is, what's a concert that you'll never forget? Arvo Pert, Canon Pocayanan. My choir did this. This is a 90-minute sing, uh, all in D minor, uh, with grand pauses that, that are between four beats and 24 beats. The choir never, there is no intermission. It's 90 minutes of singing. Wow. It was life-changing. We recorded one of the movements on a CD called Silence into Light. That was life-altering for me and for my choir. That performance, that one. And I think second is um, the recording that was involved. I have to give you a second. Yeah. Um, the recording of Annalise, the actual recording sessions that ended us up with a Grammy nomination. Wow. That was a unique human space, which I will never forget in my entire life. It was one of those times when every incredible Lincoln trio was our 
our trio and it was we knew we had created something special from a choir that theoretically didn't have a right to sing that well so those are the two you asked for one i gave you two i love that i love both of those those sound like incredible experiences what's the the best meal you've ever eaten oh okay fish and chips in oxford and there a, you go yes at a place called cuttlefish it's my favorite restaurant and i missed it we haven't been there in two years because of the lockdown i live in that restaurant and i live for their fish and chips that's it along with a pim's cup there you go tasty that's it that's me um i think i know the answer to this question but uh who are who are your musical heroes elaine brown yannick nesesegui Wilhelm Amon, Frauke Hasemann. Mm. Yeah, all of them had a, a real, Gail Polk is another one who nobody will know, Gail. And also, I got to say, Eugene Corporan and Frank. They don't know this, but I've looked up to their honest music, music making in awe. Uh, Frank is, Frank in my book is what we should all be doing and have done with our lives without question because he did it with honest purpose and integrity and, and honesty, incredible honesty. And it's sad how rare that can be. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. period, yep. Mm -hmm. Throughout the pandemic, is there anything that you binged watched and loved? No, the howling silence. Mm. I hated it and liked it. At the beginning, I hated it. And then if I could just get comfortable in my own room here, I didn't binge watch anything. Mm -hmm. That's strange. I did not for some reason. I didn't have that urge yes. to escape. I I think and I I didn't want to escape. I wanted to experience what the hell this was we were going through. And because I knew at the end, and this is something I want all your listeners to understand, and I hope they understand this, and I talk about this in the empathy book. When you go back to school, you better all deal with the fact that you're, the musicians you have will not be the kind of musicians you've ever worked with in your life, ever. They will have experienced something that you need to plug into. And I don't know what that is, but you have to be, you have to have empathy mm -hmm. because they are different people. They are going to appreciate being in a room with other people. Yeah. I mean, this is a time to rejoice and it's not an, oh, woe is me, we missed. No, everybody's going to be different, including us. Mm-hmm. The first time I heard live sound in April again, yeah, I wept uncontrollably. And it was through headphones, through we use sound jack. We had eight singers in different rooms, mm -hmm. but it was with no lag. I I fell apart. Wow. You know, you do know I say this in one of these books, but you know, when there's no sound, that's when we all get into trouble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Your, your folks will not be the same ever again. Again, it's it's using using that word. It's empathy and being mindful of the room that you're in at the time that you're in it. So I think that's, yeah. that's an important one. Yep. This is probably my favorite question to ask people. Okay. Uh, you can meet any musician throughout history, dead or alive, yep. for coffee. Mm -hmm. Who would you meet and why? Benjamin Britten. Ah, without question. I mean, you know, everybody would say Bach probably. I just find Britain and his music 
so fascinating. This is a man who wrote into his music, I think, every human conflict and struggle. Um, I find his music so human. And I just would want to meet the man. My favorite, my favorite position in my office is uh, one of my students uh, years ago who went on to a business career, found an autographed picture of Benjamin Britten of him conducting. And it's in my office. And that's a human being that I think has gifted us some of the most incredible music. I mean, I, I think, you know, Stravinsky's up there. Um, but I think as a human being, it's Benjamin Britten, without question, you know. The last one, what's one thing that you're grateful for right now? Oh, all the students I've taught at Westminster and Williamson Voices, especially, they're incredible human beings. And, you know, I'm lucky enough, we're going to do a recording with the same stream. I tell all your listeners to go to thesamestreamchoir.com, one word. This is a group that forced me six years ago, they wanted to continue to sing together. Mm. There's no choral ensemble that can say that, that they have sung together for their years at Westminster. And so when we meet to do a recording, we just pick up where we left off. That's beautiful. It's in our recordings. There's one coming out called To Hold the Light that I would tell everybody. It's it's the I, I'm proud of all my recordings, but this recording and the sonic world that this choir found is my ideal. That's it. End of story. It's coming out uh, in August, August 22nd, to hold the light. It's There are a couple pieces on there should, which should be transcribed for wind band. Hmm. I mean, they're just incredible pieces. So yeah, it's, it's these incredible students that have, we've grown together. Um, yeah. So yeah. That's awesome. Dr. Jordan, I can't say thank you enough for chatting with me tonight. This has just been lovely and this is great. So happy to have finally gotten the chance to meet you and chat with oh, you. No. no, I'm happy to do it, but it's been a pleasure. So thanks for asking. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm really looking forward to bringing you more episodes this semester. And I'm really excited about partnering with the Muted Podcast Network. If you haven't heard, Ictus is finally moved into the real world and we have our own website. It's www.ictuspodcast.com. And you guessed it, Ictus is spelled I C the number two US podcast.com.